You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Concierge at Chicago's Sherman House received a complaint the night of October 16, 1913. The caller said loud noises were coming from room 1105. When the concierge arrived at the room, he heard odd sounds, but they didn't seem excessive. He knocked and called out repeatedly, but no one answered. Concerned, he called the police. By the time the detective arrived, the room was silent. He knocked, but not getting a reply, he tried the door. Finding it unlocked, he stepped inside. The blood was everywhere. The walls, the ceiling, the floor, the sheer amount of it surprised him. A man, also covered in blood and wearing a woman's kimono-style robe, stood beside the bed, calmly puffing away on a cigar. A woman lay sprawled on the bed, her face partially obscured by a bloody handkerchief. Her throat had been cut from ear to ear. She'd also been shot twice in the chest. The man, identified as William Cheney Ellis, confessed to killing his wife, Eleanor. She was a prominent socialite, and he suspected she'd been having an affair. He told the police that she was the grandest little woman in the world. She'd begged for her life, but had been in a jealous rage. For the prosecution, the case was open and shut. William thought differently and hired a very specific lawyer, one who had already represented several men accused of killing their wives. In one case, the lawyer, George Remus, had shocked the jury by taking swigs of the poison his defendant had allegedly used to kill his wife. The act convinced the jury his client couldn't have possibly poisoned her. After his client walked free, George admitted he'd made an elixir to neutralize the poison. You see, before he was a lawyer, he had worked for years at his uncle's pharmacy. As an adult, he had even owned a couple of drugstores before switching careers. He advised William to plead temporary insanity. In March of 1914, George argued before the court that his client hadn't been in his right mind when he killed his wife, and therefore could not be held responsible. He pulled out all his theatrics, weeping and pacing. He swore to the jury and judge that his client was remorseful and truly had no idea what had happened until he found himself standing beside the bed. The jury didn't buy into the total lack of responsibility and returned a guilty verdict, much to George's surprise. However, to his delight, they did buy the insanity plea and spared William's life. The judge handed down a 15-year sentence with a chance for early parole. George had become quite successful at defending men who murdered their wives. But by 1919, another opportunity presented itself. The Volstead Act, also known as the National Prohibition Act, was gaining ground. George sensed an opening. 
With his knowledge in pharmaceuticals and the law, he thought he just might have something even more lucrative than being a defense attorney. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Though he primarily handled murder cases, George Remus was adept at keeping up with various laws outside his specialty. The more he read into the Volstead Act, the more he liked the loophole he'd discovered. The act had noble goals, like protecting women and children from abusive, alcoholic husbands and fathers. The theory went that outlawing alcohol would put an end to the epidemic of abuse. The law didn't stop people from drinking, though. Sales went underground and behind the counter. As the son of an abusive alcoholic himself, you might have thought George would be against adding to the problem. Instead, he focused on the potential profits. The loophole was entitled to Section 6. Alcohol could be bought and sold for medicinal purposes. All anyone needed was a doctor's prescription and a pharmacy to fill it. George owned a couple of pharmacies and knew he could easily buy off a few doctors. He deemed the loophole the greatest comedy and perversion of justice he'd ever seen, and began to meticulously plot how to take advantage of it. First, he closed his Chicago law practice and moved to Cincinnati, where most of the country's pre-prohibition whiskey had been stored. Next, he bought up whiskey distilleries and drug companies, making sure he listed different names as the owner of each business. Then he bribed state prohibition directors to look the other way. And finally, he organized a transportation company to move the alcohol. All told, he stood to make a hefty fortune. But there was more. The real money was in the black market. George had the product, now he needed to divert it. He had a plan for that, too. Hire gangs to hijack his own trucks. The scheme, which he called The Circle, was complex and honestly brilliant. And just as he had hoped, the money poured in. He hired secretaries to falsify paperwork, a chauffeur, a personal cook. He also hired a real estate broker named Connors to handle his property and distillery deals. Of all his underlings and employees, George liked Connors the most. And though he trusted the realtor enough to share integral parts of his operation, there was one person he trusted even more. His second wife. Imogene was a beautiful young woman, her figure voluptuous, her dark hair and eyes striking. She had a young daughter, Ruth, from her first marriage. George called Imogene his partner in everything. He was truly smitten. The two had met in 1915, when she walked into his office and asked him to handle her divorce. George commiserated with her over his own rocky marriage to Lillian, with whom he had a daughter, Ramallah. His wife had threatened a divorce before, stating he'd been cruel to her and their daughter. Imogene made herself his confidant and indispensable to his law practice. He gave her a sizable allowance, enabling her to quit her day job and live in comfort. George adored Imogene and Ruth more than his wife and daughter, and doted on them every chance he got. He saw himself as their knight in shining armor, once beating a plumber who tried swindling Imogene for a higher fee. 
The assault case went to court, but George painted himself as defending Imogene's honor, denying the affair, and stating that he was simply there to support her through her divorce. The jury found him not guilty. This was the last straw for Lillian, and she filed for divorce in 1920, winning a generous settlement and a trust fund for their daughter. After the divorce, George sold everything, married Imogene, and moved his new family to Cincinnati. The loophole had not made him simply wealthy. George had become exceedingly rich. His business and influence extended across the country, even to the White House. He and Imogene settled into a mansion overlooking the Ohio River. The couple threw lavish parties and gave their guests expensive gifts. George quickly made connections in high places. Attorney General Henry Dougherty worked closely with George and promised him protection from any legal trouble in the business. George even met President Warren G. Harding, who was notoriously linked with the criminal underworld. For a while, George was untouchable, and life was good. Then, the president died in office, and Harry's prohibition operation came under scrutiny. Two months later, agents arrested George for violation of the Volstead Act, among other crimes. In 1925, he was sent to a federal penitentiary in Atlanta. To salvage his wealth and empire, he turned to the person he trusted with everything, Imogene, granting her power of attorney. If anyone could hide the money, she could. George was sentenced to two years in the Atlanta prison and given a $10,000 fine. The money wasn't a problem. The sentence was. He was furious with the attorney general for not upholding his promise of protection. Federal agents were still digging into George's finances. He felt like the world had come crashing down on him. But at least he had Imogene. She sauntered into the clerk's office wearing a red dress and signed for her husband's bonds, freeing him until January 24th. When he started serving his time, she moved to Atlanta and visited her husband almost every day. Life inside the prison may not have been as glamorous as his outside life, but George hardly lived like most inmates. His donations to the warden allowed him to have a private cell, a new mattress with expensive sheets, a private bath, his own refrigerator, and instead of doing labor, he worked in the prison library. He ate separately from the other inmates, often dining with the warden. The two had lavish meals served on fine china and linens. Imogene was allowed both social and conjugal visits and often brought him home cooking. He was prone to fits of anger that he claimed were temporary outbursts of insanity from having the world he had built for himself destroyed. Making those fits worse, the Bureau of Investigation was intent on finding out where he'd hidden the money. Little did he know they'd sent one of their best agents to pose as a prisoner and gain his trust. Franklin Dodge was charming and young, just 30 years old, with dark hair and good looks. He made himself sympathetic to George, and before long, he found out that George had placed all his trust and business affairs with Imogene. With this information in hand, Franklin left the prison to work on the case. Word traveled, though. Before long, George found out that Franklin had been a plant and requested a meeting, intending to bribe the agent. When that didn't work, he offered info on prominent leaders from Ohio to the White House in exchange for a pardon. 
Franklin said he'd have to think about that and check with the office. George had an ace up his sleeve, though. Knowing the agency was investigating his wife, he asked Imogene to cozy up to Franklin and convince the agent to see things differently. Life in prison was getting increasingly worse. The warden was on trial for corruption, ending many of his former favors. And George's fellow inmates told him that Imogene had been getting real cozy with Franklin. The two had been seen strolling the streets and dining out together. George angrily dismissed their accusations, thinking that his wife was only doing what he'd asked and nothing more. But when Franklin abruptly left the bureau and the two still spent time together, he suspected his wife might actually be having an affair. By the end of August, George's sentence had been shortened. Soon, he'd be a free man. Imogene visited him, though their conversation seemed strained. Convinced that once he was free, things would go back to normal, he gave her a diamond ring, promising they'd have a quiet and happy life together. After the visit, George felt pretty good about the future again, until a package arrived that afternoon. He opened it to find divorce papers. Stunned, he tried talking to Imogene, but she refused to stop the divorce. George walked out of the penitentiary on September 2nd, 1925. All he had left were the clothes on his back, the pending divorce papers, and a check for $36 that Imogene had sent him. He had put Imogene in charge of everything to prevent the government from seizing his assets. She had sold off most everything. His entire empire had been systematically dismantled. All the cash was gone, too. He realized the colossal mistake he'd made in trusting a woman who had helped him dupe his first wife. He returned to Ohio and was livid when he discovered that Imogene and Franklin had been living together at their mansion. He found little comfort in the friends he had left. They all thought that Imogene had earned everything she had. Feeling betrayed by everyone he had ever trusted, George began plotting once more, this time for revenge. Little did he know, Imogene and Franklin weren't done plotting either. Not long after his release, George found himself before immigration authorities to prove he'd come to the States legally as a child. It seemed that Imogene and Franklin were trying to have him deported. The immigration courts dismissed the case, but his troubles were far from over. Word came down that the couple had spent $15,000 of his money to hire a hitman. George called the Bureau, offering himself as a star witness in upcoming Prohibition trials. As a former kingpin bootlegger with ties to the Harding administration, his testimony and knowledge would be invaluable. His network had, after all, supplied most of the nation's illegal liquor. He told them he could testify against the mob in New York City and the underworld's fastest-rising star in Chicago, Al Capone. The Bureau agreed. While acting as a professional witness, George worked diligently to recoup some of his lost assets. He revoked Imogene's power of attorney, placing it instead with Blanche Watson, a whiskey dealer he had once worked with. A shrewd businesswoman, she began sorting out how much money Imogene and Franklin had taken. Most assets hadn't left paper trail. George had been careful about that, and it had come back to bite him. Meanwhile, friends told him about his wife's exploits during his time in prison. 
It seemed everyone had known about the affair. The warden he'd been dining with had caught Imogene and Franklin in a very intimate position on the sofa in his office. Imogene had bought seven cars while he was in prison and had given at least one of them to Franklin. George spent his days walking the empty mansion, probably wondering when the government would seize it and thinking of Imogene's betrayal. Angrier than ever, George cross-petitioned the divorce, refuting Imogene's claims of cruelty. It wasn't lost on him that she'd used Lillian's reason for divorce. In his filing, though, he cited infidelity. The cross-petition enraged Franklin, as intended. Back then, while men having affairs wasn't particularly looked down on, a woman having one was. As George had come to Imogene's defense years ago, it was now Franklin's turn. The former bureau agent told the press that Imogene was an honorable woman and that he was simply assisting her with her divorce. George had other words for the press. His wife had invested her own money into his business and he'd see her in jail. He left out that he wanted her behind bars not because it was justice, but from spite that his former mistress-turned-wife had left him for someone else. George acquired a Colt 45 from the current attorney general, saying he needed it in case another hitman came calling. A bad idea for sure, though it was about to get worse. One morning, as Imogene walked with friends and her lawyer to the Atlanta courthouse, George passed by, and she shrieked. It's not clear if he whispered a threat to her or she caught sight of the gun, but she begged him not to kill her. George rolled his eyes and remarked to a nearby reporter how dramatic his wife could be, especially when playing the victim. He met up with her a couple more times that year. He wanted his money back, and Imogene seemed interested in mending their marriage. George went back to prison throughout 1926 for a final charge against him. When he was released, he was scheduled for another court appearance, his divorce. On October 6th of 1927, he asked friends to allow him a few private words with Imogene, alone. He spotted her, dressed in black and accompanied by her daughter Ruth, who had turned out to look exactly like her mother. Imogene didn't have any intention of talking to George and hailed a cab. George ordered his driver to follow them and cut the cab off. Imogene ran from the cab and he set out after her. He caught her and spun her around to face him. Seeing the colt in his hand, she professed her love for him. George replied that he who danced down the primrose path must also die on it. Then he pulled the trigger. Behind him, Ruth began to scream. He turned himself in and confessed. For Charles P. Taft, a prosecutor and son of the former president, it was an open and shut case. George had other plans, though. He pleaded insanity due to his wife's affair. And just like the case back in 1914, the jury found him not guilty due to insanity. George laughed heartily at the verdict. He'd gotten his revenge. But he didn't laugh for long. Instead of prison, the state temporarily had him committed to an asylum. It's barely a footnote, really. 
Maybe something scribbled on a cocktail napkin, or a rumor passed along by hotel staff or guests at a party, their heads pressed against one another as they whisper, he met him right here. According to the Seelbach Hotel's history, the two men met at the bar one night, a larger-than-life racketeer and a reluctant soldier who favored the bar whenever he was on weekend leave. They definitely didn't become friends. They might not have so much as exchanged a single word. But while the kingpin wasn't likely to remember the young man in a Brooks Brothers suit, the young man certainly remembered him. The soldier had walked in one night, just as he'd done countless times before, with high hopes and enough money to buy liquor. While every time before he had walked out drunk and empty-handed, this particular night, he walked out with exactly what he'd been looking for. No, not one of the many attractive women or an entry-level position in the bootlegging business. He left inspired, and it's easy to see where he got it. The Seelbach Hotel is as grand as it is historic. An example of Beaux-Arts architecture with high ceilings, sweeping staircases, and opulent chandeliers, the hotel is a wedding hotspot. And in 1920, its characteristic combination of French neoclassicism, Renaissance, and Baroque styles made the hotel's rascaler ballroom the place to be seen. The 21-year-old soldier found the place unlike any other. The bartenders served cold gin on a copper-topped bar. Pretty girls were plentiful, as were the men anxious to meet them. Brisk jazz played in the background, inviting many to dance. Romances bloomed and faded in the blink or wink of an eye. American women had just won the right to vote, and some had taken to wearing straight, loose, knee-length dresses and skirts. They cut their hair into bobs, drank and smoked cigarettes, and were considered far too independent for polite society. Known as flapper girls, they were the icon of the Roaring Twenties. Celebrities often flocked to the ballroom, as did racketeers and mobsters like Al Capone, Lucky Luciano, and George Remus. As the music played and the liquor flowed, underworld kingpins smoked cigars, drank bourbon, and played cards. All the while, the soldier sat on a bar stool, watching and scribbling down notes. Little did he know that the party lifestyle he witnessed would soon become his own. Of all the men in attendance, though, one in particular stuck out, George Remus. The bootlegger's over-the-top personality had been exactly what he was looking for. After leaving the hotel, the soldier read up on him. The rest, as they say, is history. That young soldier wrote what's considered one of America's greatest novels. It's said that the hotel in the book was modeled after the Seelbach itself and that the main character, Jay, was inspired by George Remus. The novelist, F. Scott Fitzgerald, author of The Great Gatsby. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. 
At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like levi's and exertion here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicles in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The word conjures up backhill distilleries, speakeasies, and illegal bootleg operations during Prohibition. But for much of American history, moonshine was legal. The earlier English colonists didn't take to the new waves of Scottish and Irish immigrants, forcing them to form their own communities. Most settled in the Appalachians, where they distilled liquor, mostly whiskey. While the colonists weren't thrilled with the newer immigrants, they were happy to have them fight against the British in the American Revolution. But when the war ended, the gratitude ended, and the Irish and Scottish retreated to the mountains, though they'd found a new business, selling moonshine. The liquor became popular during times of stress and economic hardship. In the late 1700s, the government sought to tax the liquor, causing farmers and distillers to protest. Known as the Whiskey Rebellion, the skirmish became the first known test of the newly formed government. When the conflict ended, moonshiners found ways to evade taxes until the Civil War. Until then, most Americans saw the distillers as farmers looking for an extra way to stay afloat. But once again, the government stepped in. Moonshine wasn't illegal. Farmers and distillers could make all they wanted. And consumption wasn't the problem either. But selling it required paying taxes. And no other state got more aggressive about taxing liquor than Georgia. Unfortunately for the federal agents sent into the state's northern hills to collect, the moonshiners were equally aggressive and resistant to their presence. Violence often erupted between agents and still operators. When public opinion about collecting taxes on liquor shifted in favor of the government, Moonshiners took to assaulting anyone they thought had turned them in. But the people who most often ratted out the distillers were other moonshiners trying to take out the competition. And the real divide between the general public and distillers came when there were shootouts in the streets. This started the Moonshine Wars, which lasted from 1870 until 1890. Federal agents had a hard time shutting down the distillers who didn't pay taxes because they couldn't find where they had hidden their stills. 
Those who lived in the hills knew every back road and trail, and the big city agents didn't. The moonshiners who'd served in the war also knew a few tricks when it came to defending their property. In the spring of 1878, Lieutenant McIntyre of the U.S. Army was murdered while assisting deputy marshals raid Gilmer County. The deputies became convinced the killer had been one of the two Jones brothers and set out to capture them. The arrest wouldn't be easy. The Jones family lived in the most remote section of the county. The brothers easily eluded authorities for the better part of a year. At one point, the search party for the brothers exceeded 50 men. They raided Ayers Jones' home, but found only his wife and children present. Raids on the family property also turned up nothing, and though some family members were arrested, no warrants for the search had been given. Judges in Atlanta had no reason to hold the family and released them. The agents were relentless, though, vowing revenge for McIntyre's death. Once they finally caught up with the brothers, they were brought to Atlanta for trial. As spectators gasped at the sight of them. The men were massive. Their long black hair was unkempt and woolly, and their thick beards and fierce eyes gave them a wild, unsettling look. The deputies didn't have enough evidence to convict them, and the men were acquitted. They immediately headed back to Gilmer County and the moonshine business. Their brush with the law didn't end with their release, though. Their business increased, drawing the attention of federal agents once more. Though the agents issued warrant after warrant and conducted search after search, the Jones brothers managed to keep on the move. Rumors that they'd relocated to Chattanooga County surfaced, and agents assembled another manhunt. Though they didn't have high budgets or government connections, the brothers managed to disappear into the mountains, taking a path few wanted to follow. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmandMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com.